this is the right moment for Mali and Malian population to think deeper, not just why we had a military coup, because if we don't get to the point to understand why we're getting military coup every five years or every 10 years, we keep having military coup every day. And this is not just about Mali, this is about the entire region. Hello everyone and welcome to a new episode of Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. My name is Christopher Starke. In today's interview, we take a deep dive into anti-corruption in Mali. For that, we invited two outstanding experts on the topic from the Accountability Lab Mali. Dusuba Konate, who is the Global Program Officer, and Musa Kondo, who is the Country Director of Mali for the Accountability Lab. After outlining how both of them became interested in anti-corruption, Dusuba and Musa explain their human-centric approach in the fight against corruption, with one example being the Integrity Icon Project that is centered around the idea of naming and faming honest government officials. The interview also covers the link between the current political situation in Mali and corruption and the priorities to tackle corruption in Mali. If you like our work here at Kickback, please write us a positive review wherever you get your podcast from. It helps others to find the show. You can also follow us on Facebook and Twitter under at KickbackGAP. And now, over to the interview between Matthew Stevenson, Dusuba Konate and Musa Kondo. Greetings and welcome to Kickback, the global anti-corruption podcast. This is Matthew Stevenson. Today I am joined by Dusuba Konate and Musa Kondo, both of whom work for a non-governmental civil society organization called the Accountability Lab. Dusuba is a senior program officer with Accountability Lab Global, and Musa is the director of Accountability Lab Mali. And I'm happy uh, to have the opportunity to speak with the two of you today about corruption, anti-corruption developments in Mali, as well as the work of the anti-corruption lab more generally. So greetings to both of you. Hello. Happy to be here, Matt. Terrific. Well, maybe if we could start out, I'd love to hear a little bit about each of your own backgrounds, how you came to be interested in uh, corruption, anti-corruption as a topic, and maybe a little bit about the work that you're currently doing with the Accountability Lab. So, uh, Dasuba, maybe if I could start with you, tell me a little bit about how you came to be doing the work that you're doing. Yeah, well, first of all, thank you so much for, for having us. So, um, I was actually born and raised abroad, but uh, I always wanted to actually to come back to Mali, to live here, and see how I can contribute to my native country in terms of development, I guess. And I decided to work for Accountability Lab, which is an organization that aims to make governance work for everyone. And um, I think that governance is such an interesting topic in the sense that it's really transversal. Meaning that with governance, you actually touch on every aspect of the development of the Malian society. And most important, corruption is uh, something that you can see um, absolutely everywhere, like on a really small level, but at the same time in a really like high level. So let's say, for example, if you are driving and that you 
do something bad, like a police officer might stop you and automatically there's that, you know, small corruption that began where um, the police officer will ask you to give something. And I think that it's really important to actually take some measures toward those aspects because this is just like a small example, there's, but there's much more corruption than, than that. And it really affects the life of everyone every single day. So that's why I thought that it was really, it, it's, it's really um, something that is really important for me. And I think it's really crucial for, um, for Mali in general. And Musa, what about you? How did you end up focusing on this issue in your career? How did you come to be working for the Accountability Lab? And how did you generally develop an interest in governance and corruption as topics? Yeah, thanks so much, Matt, uh, for having us here. I've been working as, uh, on this topic for a couple of years before I joined the Accountability Lab as a journalist here in Mali. And um, when I got opportunity to be selected among the Yali Fellows, Young African Leaders Initiative or State Department, I've been in the, in the U.S. to, to study in New Hampshire, uh, Dartmouth College. So it's from this experience, Accountability, Accountability Lab touched by, based with me uh, to work uh, as my uh, practicum program of the YALI in Liberia, as uh, the office just started in Liberia a couple of years ago. So I've been in Liberia as a program manager, and I've been working on a, a different project of accountability lab uh, for a couple of months in Liberia, uh, in Morovia, and inside, inside the country. And uh, I just realized the same thing we're doing here are the same challenges and problems uh, facing Malians and Mali every day. So uh, I can't believe that we're just working in uh, uh, English spoken countries. So I joined the board and uh, the CEO and the founder of I can't believe that was Mr. Uh, Blair Glencourse and uh, mentioned my, my envy to open the office in, uh, in Mali. And that time in 2016 was, um, we had a huge conversation about the context, about the security aspect, about uh, the fundraising, about uh, the language barrier, so I, I was really decided and passionate about this, the, the, the topic. So uh, finally, we got a point, and then uh, I opened the office in Mali in 2016. And since then, we've been, we are implementing the same program and projects on governance, transparency, uh, civic engagement and participation, and of course, combating corruption in the country. So I'd love to hear a little bit more about those projects. I mean, it seems pretty clear that the corruption challenges in Mali and elsewhere are are very large. My understanding is that your operation is relatively small. So I imagine that you had to make some choices about what topics you were going to focus on and what projects you were going to emphasize um, in, I guess it's been a little over four years now since you've had an office in Mali. Can you talk a little bit more, and maybe Musa, I'll start with you since you were just mentioning it, but uh, Dasuba, I'd love to hear uh, your input as well. What have your priority areas been for the Accountability Lab's work in Mali? What are your main focus areas? Yeah, this is a great question because uh, we have we're having tons of initiatives since uh, Mali got uh, uh, independence from a colonial country, France, uh, to combat corruption and make governance work for people. But the the question is uh, why this um, uh, initiatives have not been working or uh, meeting the need of population and also in uh, in the terms of globalization we cannot focus in the same thing without innovating and uh, 
creating new approaches. So this has been something really important in accountability lab, even in Mali and globally. And um, have been studying in general business and entrepreneurship about uh, human-centered design. This process helped me a lot to understand deeper my own context and local uh, dynamics and see how we can implement or uh, transform or re, re or, like orient the, the new knowledge we have learned and we've been sharing with the global team to adapt in the context in Mali and having a special focus on the ones who have not been at school and how they can participate by understanding what it's about and how they can get uh, they can engage themselves to participate in the process since the lowest level. Because we've seen it doesn't matter you create a solution from a, a solution designed in Washington or Amsterdam or Paris and bring this in, in Mali, it will not fit the reality. But how we can process to make the human as the human as centered design solutions so they can be part of the process, understand uh, who is bringing the development, who should be part of the development and when the development is coming. So when you have all the communities part of this process, it'd be easier to create and, and, and initiate uh, activities or projects. Great, well, Dusuba, maybe I can ask you to, to um, add to what Musa was just saying. And, and could you tell me a little bit more, tell our listeners a little bit more about the specific sorts of projects that the Accountability Lab um, is pursuing in Mali or elsewhere? Because uh, I understood from Musa the emphasis in general on, I think what Musa was calling a, a human-centric approach. Uh, but I would love to know a little bit more about how this translates into specific projects or initiatives. So could you maybe describe one or two of the thing, the specific things that the Accountability Lab is doing in Mali uh, to advance an anti-corruption agenda? So I'm going to start with the first one. We have a program that is called integrity icon. So the goal of that program is really to identify and celebrate honest civil servants. So this, this campaign is actually bringing like another level of narrative in the sense that we want to bring a positive narrative in all of the discussion that we have around corruption, around transparency. So the goal of that is really to, um, like I said, identify people that were working for the government, but who are really honest and who are doing their job the way they are supposed to do it, and even more, who are even fighting corruption. So it's also about bringing like, um, some role model in the discussion, because whenever we talk about corruption, I mean, you can go into the street right now and we have what we call so it's just like the space of discussion where you're going to meet people and they're just going to talk about, you know, things that are happening in the society or in the community. And a lot of people, they, they will actually talk about corruption. And if you talk about corruption and you ask them, like, people who are corrupted, they will give you, like, a long list of people. But I think it's really important to actually change that narrative and talk about positive things, people who are actually doing who are fighting corruption, who are doing the job the way they are supposed to do it. And we actually just started here in Mali the, the campaign for 2020. Uh, and my colleagues are actually right now in the different region of Mali to actually meet those icons. And usually we have five per year. You know, we have women, we have men who are uh, working in all type of sector, whether it's health, uh, education, justice, um, people who are absolutely amazing. 
and we're working in different regions in Mali. And our goal is really to, to tell to everyone that we have people who are doing the right job, people who are not corrupted, and they really want to serve the, the Malian population the way they are supposed to do it. So, so that's really important. And also it's, it does create some kind of, of discussion inside the country on what we are expecting in like a, a person who is working for the government. So that's something that is really, uh, this is really important. And this is kind of our flagship program here in Mali. And uh, we have a second one. I'm just going to name two. Um, the second one is actually the Civ Act program. So Civic um, Action Team. So it's really people that we have. Um, it, it's actually a way to collect data on a specific issue in, in, in Mali. It could be in Bamako. It could be in, like, in different regions. And the goal is really to collect data on a specific problem the, the, the community is facing. And by collecting this data, the, the goal of it is to have, obviously, a better understanding of what is happening. But it's also for the member of the population, the community, to have also a better understanding of what is happening. Then what we do is that usually we will analyze those data, go back to the community and give them those information so that they can, they can advocate for themselves to actually, to, to actually find some, some solution to the different problems that they have in the community. So I'm going to give you uh, a few examples. For example, we actually did a few studies in the northern part of the region as well in the center part of, of Mali. And as we know, those regions are really, um, they are facing a lot of insecurity since 2012. And we were trying to understand why youth were actually engaged in like terrorist group. We wanted to have like a better understanding of that. And what we realized is that there is a lot of youth that were, you know, getting engaged in this type of uh, activities, not because they really believe in the, the mission of those, of those group, but more because they had no other opportunities. And basically, that means that there is an issue here in Mali is that Mali is a pretty large country. And unfortunately, we don't have the sufficient resources, whether it's financial, whether it's human resources, to actually have a control on the entire territory. And this is leading to uh, a lot of group, a lot of rebel group, uh, a lot of terrorist group taking control of some areas where um, usually those people are going to kind of bargain and offer some kind of compensation to, to people on the ground so that they can get involved with them. So we realized that we needed to really do something for uh, for those uh, for those community, and that led to other different type of program that we are offering as well. And maybe just to put that also in the context of the the sanitary crisis that the world is facing right now um, through the COVID nineteen. Through that same program, what we decided also to um, to receive act is that we decided to actually collect the fake news. Because as you know, whether it's in the United States, whether it's in France, whether it's in China or in Mali, there is a lot of news, a lot of fake news that are being disseminated toward the COVID-19, which is actually creating a lot of harm to, to people. So we decided to actually collect those fake news to then verify those information and then disseminate the right information 
in all type of different platforms. We do that in French and we also do that in local language to make sure that we can reach a lot of people. Um, since you mentioned the COVID-19 epidemic, I feel like it might make sense to ask a little bit about some of the concerns related to corruption and transparency that have come up with respect to the response to COVID-19 all over the world. And I'm sure you're familiar with these concerns, but I'd, I'd be very interested to hear your perspective, particularly on Mali and the extent to which those concerns are pertinent there. So you would brought up one issue, which is very important, which is the issue of, of, of fake news or misleading information. Another issue that has received a fair amount of attention in the anti-corruption community has to do with concerns that the funds that are being allocated for pandemic response or for economic recovery may be diverted or stolen or misappropriated in, in some way. And again, I'm sure both of you are familiar with the general problem because this occurs in many contexts, especially when there's a, some kind of a disaster situation. There's a lot of pressure to get money out quickly, to try to get um, funds in the hands of people who need it. But when safeguards are relaxed because of a sense of urgency, it increases the risks that uh, money will be, again, stolen or misappropriated or that other forms of corruption will undermine the relief efforts. And I'm curious the extent to which these sorts of concerns have been uh, raised in Mali and what kinds of responses that we've seen, whether you think that both the government and maybe the international donor community have been doing the right thing with respect to ensuring integrity in uh, the COVID-19 response, or whether you think that uh, more can or should be done? That's a really good question. Regarding that, I I'm going to start, and Musa, don't hesitate to jump in. So first of all, the COVID-19 in Mali, uh, just to give you a little bit of context. For first of all, I mean, I mean, we were bombarded of information about the COVID-19 uh, on the news, and people were like really scared. But the situation in Africa, and I guess compared to the situation in Europe and Asia, was really different in the sense that we only had our first uh, positive cases of COVID-19 in March. So right now, when you talk to people about the COVID-19, there is a lot of people that will say that it's, um, it's actually just an invention, and it's just to get money. And unfortunately, people have the feeling that the money is not getting to them. What we decided to do at Accountability Lab Mali is that um, through the program that I just mentioned, the SIEVE Act, where we were actually debunking the rumors, we were doing that in a form of sending information about the rumors, but also we had a section that called Follow Money. And our goal was to really follow all of the amounts that were given to the government to fight the COVID-19. This is funny because uh, we are still like monitoring all of those information and, and, and Musa, if you, can, if you can please jump in, but uh, Musa even did a post like a few days ago about that amount, trying to understand where that money went. Um, was it distributed to the population? Because there is a lot of things that we, that we saw. I mean, there was that program that, that was launched by the president not the actual president, but <laughs> the one who got evicted by the, the coup on August 18, there was a program called One Malian, One Mask. 
And the goal was to give one reusable mask to all of the population in Mali. I did not receive any mask. And I know that there is a lot of people that did not receive a mask. So that's really unfortunate. And I was really, I personally was really following that, uh, that program because I thought that it was such an amazing idea to actually like offering like a positive solution to, to, the, to the population in that sanitary crisis. Um, but there is also some other cases where we heard that the member of the government were actually selling donation to the markets. So, and, and fortunately, that's not, we, we didn't hear some good thing. But Musa, if you have any other information about that, that would be amazing. Yeah, uh, thanks so much, Tsuba, and thanks man, for this question, because uh, for us, this is a really important and uh, great one, because since the COVID-19 uh, pandemic started uh, hitting uh, hard, the rest of the world in Mali, um, the government and also uh, other organizations start among them, the earliest one was accountability lab um, to combat the, the track rumors and fake news and debunking the myth uh, around this pandemic as uh, the first hours, as uh, the war, even the, the organization, the who WHO even had more information about it. So the other side also, we had a lot of uh, found uh, call for found to support the government initiatives uh, to support this national commission uh, facing um, uh, the pandemic. So our program followed the money started with, um, uh, with tracking every single saint given or uh, debt release uh, from international institution to help the country face uh, the pandemic. From the local level, we, we joined an international um, organization named Account for COVID, uh, based in, uh, in, uh, in Washington, D.C., and uh, uh, the lead organization is the Global Integrity. So we organized panel discussion and all kind of uh, uh, work around this topic. But in Mali here, we realize uh, whatever the government uh, was having as funding, as debt release, uh, material support from uh, international institutions, from international foundations, and uh, from particular individuals who uh, give bills of uh, 100 millions of SEFA to support the, the, the pandemic here. So there was any sort of uh, transparency around it. One, because First, we have a lot of uh, problems to, to follow the process when it's about uh, opening the, the procedures of uh, um, public, uh, when the government is paying things, uh, procurement process, and all that. So when you put emergency code inside that, it's like one person or two person can break the, the small rule, rules we have in the name of emergency. Say, well, okay, because of the emergency, I was doing this quick and we're doing that. So, and we got in touch, even yesterday, I was in the, one of the biggest hospitals in Mali named Poinje. I was there and I was, uh, I had a meeting with the psychological department. The head of this department was supposed to work with the, um, the ones who, they, uh, the COVID-19 betters uh, in the center. They said, Musa, even today, the mask we have, I got my mask by myself. So when I, we put in the table all the, the, the funding, the funds received by the government from our international, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank Group, the USAID, uh, European Union, uh, United Nations. So it's like individual donation is like billions of CFA. 
So where this money gone? So it's not something we're taking from the street, but the ones even uh, two days ago, uh, the second biggest hospital, Hospital Jumali, where we have uh, a COVID-19 uh, funding, a COVID-19 center to host people, to treat them, and also to feed them and all that. They, the workers, the, the ones who are on the front lines, the front liners in this fight were in the street. They stopped working because they were complaining for not being paid for like a three months or more than like three months. So the thing we are combating and fighting is uh, things were really tangible and they are a fact. So we know we've been tracking money from uh, the website of these institutions. It's not something we have created by ourselves, but when International Monetary Fund say we give 120 billion of CFA to Mali government to, to face uh, this pandemic, they publish it in their website. So it's not something uh, from accountability lab Mali. So we capture all these donations and we follow it. And we ask people to follow with us. So we put pressure on government. Hey guys, we know who is giving the money to you. We know how much these institutions are giving to you. But in the other hand, people, frontliners have not been paid. They have not receiving masks. So this is even not part of the government social uh, support to entrepreneurs, to uh, economic support and all that. So can you imagine how deep the game is in terms of corruption in Mali? So this is for us, this is things which are pretty transparent, open, and we can read clearly. So this kind of fight and trouble, we, we, we're trying to put it here and emphasize it to make things happen and make things work for the frontliners and also for, for citizens. When you do things like that, when you and other civil society groups call attention to the fact that, for example, equipment and other resources are not reaching the frontline workers, do you tend to find that the government's response to this is uh, more one of gratitude? That is, they're really happy to have uh, civil society activists like you uh, trying to address these problems? or more along the lines of um, annoyance or resistance or a sense that, uh, that you and other people in civil society are, are embarrassing the government or calling attention to things they'd really rather people not talk about? Yeah, um, we have like both sides because we will not be seen by the same eye as the ones who are uh, relocated these funds. So the person will not love us, but the ones uh, who received the information and who are not being treated fairly and who the government owes money, they will be super happy to say, we have a real reason to keep fighting because if there is no money, we can say, okay, this is something national. We can sacrifice ourselves and do the work and, uh, and hopefully our country will be, you know, uh, saved or whatever. But it is not about there is no money. There is no, there is money. But why the money is not, why the salaries are not being paid? Why masks are not being paid? Why people are not in the condition to work and to protect themselves? Because the frontliners are in double, uh, double uh, threat because they are frontliners with, the, with, with the, the COVID-19 batteries and also they are citizens, as uh, they are humans, as others. So why the government did not emphasize on the work and the protection and things? That angle is uh, corruption gets a level to the citizen. He has no power to change the dynamic. 
because you even don't know how or where to start fighting against corruption. Because it's, it becomes so global, it becomes so, it, it becomes part of every single thing of a daily life. From the government officials to the policemen in the street for, through like social corruption, religious corruption, you have corruption everywhere. So now by bringing such kind of a topic in the field with so much transparency, they think, okay, this is a way to push. When we push the government to tell us what is the money goes, where or how they use the money instead of using in combating, uh, combating COVID-19, this is a first step. So it's like when we realize, and also we put a, a lot of pressure on justice side also, say you guys cannot stand, sit and look because this is something, this is national trade. You cannot let them relocate the funding which was supposed to fund the fight against, uh, against COVID-19. So by mobilizing, we see a lot of people supporting us, showing support and even say, Musa, we are ready to go, to go down the street to support you openly and whatever, because they see a starting point. They see like here could be the starting point to combat corruption. They would say, there is no trust. We don't trust you guys. So we sat back and we let you do whatever you want to do. So this is the biggest problem here. People think no any kind of power to change the dynamic. So by bringing another way to do, by focusing much more on transparency, you can help people see clearly what's happening and how it's happening and why or how they can be part of the process. So by more information, we empower them to be more, to understand and then to participate. And from participation to engagement is only one line. So this is the process. I wanted to ask about another um, issue. Uh, Dusuba, you, you referenced this when you, when you were speaking before, and I want to pick up on a couple of things you said. And, and, and these questions really concern the political situation in Mali and how it intersects both with your work specifically with the Accountability Lab, but more generally uh, with issues related to corruption, anti-corruption. So, so again, I want to ask a little bit about the political situation in Mali. So I, I should acknowledge, it, it'll probably be obvious to you and to our listeners, I know very little about Mali. It's not a country that I've, I've studied. I've never been there. I'm not, I'm not at all uh, an expert. But I gather um, there are a couple of important things, Dusuba, that, that you mentioned explicitly before that I, I wanted to, to pick up on. One is the security situation generally, that, as you say, it's a large country and there have been issues with uh, terrorist groups, other forms of insurgent groups, the national security situation generally. And second, um, Mali has a history of military coups, the most uh, recent of which occurred uh, quite recently, this, this past August. And I realize these two uh, aspects of the political situation in Mali are not the same, although they may be linked, but I'm curious ab about both of them. And um, maybe let me start with the, the most recent coup or with Mali's history of, of military intervention in politics more generally, and ask um, in what ways is this uh, aspect of Malian politics related to general concerns about corruption and, and governance. And I ask this in part because in other countries, military coups have sometimes been, been justified by their, by their defenders as cleaning up politics, right? The civilian politicians made a mess of things and now the military needs to come solve it. 
There are also concerns raised, though, that military governments or other forms of, of government where, where power is highly centralized present in some ways a higher corruption risks, or at least different sorts of corruption risks than do ordinarily functioning democracies. So, so but do you have any thoughts on that? Is, is there a relationship worth discussing between the, the political situation in Mali and the situation with respect to governance and corruption? Uh, yes. So I think that there is a clear link between the two. Again, just to give a little bit of context, as you said, yeah, Mali does have an history of, of coups because, first of all, Mali has been going into um, like a multidimensional crisis since the 2012 coup d'etat. So we had one in 2012, and now we have another one in like eight years after, in 2020. Even though some people might say, no, we don't want to call that a coup d'etat because the president resigned, but well, we are in, well, let's say that it's a coup d'etat. So we are really in a multidimensional crisis, um, a territorial crisis, a social one, a political one, a security one. Since 2012, like half of the country was actually being occupied by independent group. So we had like different international army that actually came, helped the, the Malian army to, to fight this group on the north. But now, um, those past few years, what we noticed is that the insecurity is actually like crippled down in the center region of Mali. So that's, that's another, like another big issue that is adding on the one that we already have in the north. And basically, like over the past few months, we have witnessed like widespread protest demanding the resignation of the uh, incumbent president. Her, his name was Ibeka, Ibrahim Bakar Keita, which actually led to a coup d'etat on August 18, 2020. And when people were actually protesting, they were actually saying that um, they were protesting because the French is, in, is here in Mali, they, they were protesting because of the, the corruption, because of the bad governance, because the because of the lack of social justice, and it doesn't it didn't start it right now. I mean, I remember that one year ago on September 11, I was in Washington D.C. for a Sahel summit, and um, just a few days ago, there is a, a big religious leader. His name is Imam Diko. He just had created his movement. And his movement is actually at the base of those protests that we had since the beginning of the year that led to the resignation, well, to the coup d'etat that led to the resignation of the president. And their concern was really the situation in which most of the Malian population was. The fact that there is rampant corruption everywhere, that there is bad governance. And, and there is that, that corruption is not just, what I'm saying, it's rampant, it's very in all aspects. Um, that meaning that it's even like in the military system. And a lot of people are saying that that coup actually started because there was a fight between the military and the government because they were not paid. So this is just one example, but Musa was actually giving the example of the doctors at the Hôpital du Mali. There's also that, the example of the teachers who have been on strike since 2018. So th this is really problematic in the sense that like all of the Malian are really suffering from, from that. People are not being paid. 
Uh, we don't have access to a good quality health system. Um, our children cannot go to good public schools. Basically, you need to put them in private school if you want them to, to succeed. I mean, the, the, the list is long, but definitely there is a link between that coup d'etat and the corruption in the Malian government. Do you have a sense, and I realize this might be a bit of a delicate question, so you know, if you don't want to answer directly, that's, that's totally understandable. But do you have a sense whether the new government, the one that came to power in the most recent coup d'etat, is likely to take effective action to address some of these problems? Or are you uh, skeptical whether this change of government is actually going to lead to a meaningful change in governance, if, if that formulation makes sense to you? Yeah, I'm going to give you my personal point of view and, and then the professional one. But on a personal side, so when the coup happened, a few days after, like thousands of people were on the streets manifesting their, their joy because that coup happened. And they wanted to show to the military that they are, the, the, the population is actually supporting them because um, enough is enough basically. So I think that we are in a context where as a Malian person, we want to be optimist. And uh, we have to be optimist. And even as a person who is working for an NGO, it's important to be optimist. Otherwise, then I would just stop working. Like people can dare to dream to be in, in like in a better situation. We really hope that the people that are right now that came to that came to power will actually put the right action to place to make sure that um, impunity is not something that will happen in Mali anymore, that the corruption will be fight and that um, the money will go to the right places so that we can have good roads, good school, good hospital, good everything. So I think it's really important for us to be uh, to be optimistic. And I think also we notice that the, the military that are now in place, they, I mean, they showed us some, some kind of steps showing that they really want to fight the corruption. For example, at the beginning when, when the, the coup happened, they received a lot, of, a lot of messages and people wanted to give them money to support what they were doing. And they actually sent a message, like a communique, to make sure that, uh, to tell to everyone that they don't want any kind of money, because as you know, money comes where some kind of control and, and things like that. And they really think that what they are doing, they are doing because for the well-being of, of Mali and, and, and the Malian population. And I know also that they, they met a lot of actors in, in the country to talk about the corruption aspect of it. So, um, I don't have specific point for now, but I mean, there's already a process that has been started showing us that they really want to do something about it. Now we just have to wait because the action are, are bigger than words. So we, we want to see what, what real action they will actually put in place. Um, but one of the things that I really appreciate about that is that they really try to uh, communicate with, with a lot of actors, with um, the, the civil society organization, to really take the the pulse of all of those uh, all of those actors and the community here in Mali. 
And Musa, may I ask for your perspective on the relationship between the corruption challenges facing Mali and the political situation, in particular, the, both the security situation generally and also the recent military coup? Yeah, of course. It's pretty, um, you know, funny when people see the consequences of the lack of transparency, the bad governance, corruption, and insecurity as what we're living right now. Uh, this is something we have seen far before we get here. And uh, I personally, and also my colleague Dusuba and, uh, and Blair, we, we did a lot of uh, research and also write op-ed for international media, even in Bamako and outside of Mali, to get people's attention about what's going on and how it's important to create a very accountable system so people can find themselves in. Because the lack of uh, trust, uh, transparency, corruption, when you combine all that, is like every day you create new frustrated frustration in, uh, inside people, inside your own population. And when you, the, the consequences of insecurity uh, today is like people are getting killed everywhere. In the last one, the latest one is just a couple of days ago, uh, an ambulance just blown up in the southern area, in Sikasso, which is like the safest place right now in Mali. So that means from northern regions to central area, and now if, uh, down the south, we're having a security situations happening. So when these things happen, and you see a couple of people having a lot of uh, uh, illegally money from uh, money uh, laundry, money uh, corruption from uh, even buying the equipment for, for the National Army, you gotta, you get a point of getting really, the frustrations get a point. So when the, the frustration decides to come out, you cannot, you know, manage this emotion. It's like people can express the way they want to express their anger. So this is what's happening right now. And this is what happened even during the military coup in 2012 with Dusuba mentioned. So now that's why we think this is the right moment for Mali and Mali history and Malian population to think deeper, not just why we had a military coup, because if we don't get to the point to understand why we're getting military coup every five years or every 10 years, we keep having military coup every day. And this is not just about Mali, this is about the entire region, because we see even international organizations, this has been a conversation we're having a lot of uh, putting in the table everywhere, among the ECOWAS, which is the, the uh, regional commun community uh, living together like 15 countries, we say it's good to ban a coup d'etat and all that, but how to anticipate by forcing the ruling power, the, the regimes, to be more regarding in terms of uh, corruption, in terms of uh, bad governance. Because when people don't have uh, security, they are not safe, they don't feel protected, whatever, and they, they, they're wealth and also uh, corruption in a very thin party part of the country is having fun with the, 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 the government and uh, people's money, things will not work out. So in this, the latest uh, right up it, Dusuba and I published it, uh, was about um, how to get the system more inclusive and participatory, not just about a slogan, like a, a word you've been telling everyone about how to make it concrete, how to make it happen. When I say uh, inclusion is about youth and women, to get new faces around the table because the ones who are part of the problem could not be the solution for the change. 
So there's been a lot of push uh, in accountability law. We, we are thinking and, uh, and developing new approaches which will take in consideration at uh, this point. And even this line, the same line, we've been working hard to, uh, to draw the 10 good practices we think the new Mali should take this in consideration in terms of development. So this is to anticipate in whatever happened, because for us, it's not about uh, the former president, Ibrahim Bobakar Keita, it's not about him. It's about the entire system. If the system remains the same, even though 100 president comes after him, it will be the same, because it will be the same corruption system, it will be the same bad governance system, it will be the same uh, insecurity, and people will always want to express this anger, will no more need to live in fear, no more uh, want to live in a uh, position where you have like, any control on what's, what's happening around you. So this is the point we are right now, and it's important to get everyone in the same uh, conversation. What I mean, conversation, not the ones who want to make a living from the crisis, but the ones who are victims of the crisis. Because the ones that are victims were not willing the crisis to happen again because they've been suffering a lot. But not the ones who are living, making a living, like say, even the crisis happened this way, I will become minister of the crisis. This guy would never want the crisis to, act, to stop because they are live from the, the crisis. So it's important to get all these uh, different angles to trade, to think, and to think deeper so we cannot, we, we, we don't see another uh, military coup in the coming, coming years. Fantastic. Well, we're getting to the end of our, our time, but Musa, I want to pick up on something you said uh, in the course of your, your very interesting comments that I think might be a good place on which to, to close our conversation. You mentioned that in some of the writing that the two of you have been doing and that the Accountability Lab has been doing more generally, you've been developing a list of specific and concrete recommendations for the new government. And I would love to hear maybe a bit from each of you about your views of the highest priority concrete reforms that you would like to see the Malian government adopt in the short to medium term. And I know that you've thought about this extensively and you have a whole list and we probably don't have time to go into everything, but maybe if I could ask each of you to name, say one, two or three specific measures that you think would make an important difference to, let's focus on the, the fight against corruption in particular. I know there are a lot of issues more broadly related to governance and transparency, but with respect to dealing with the corruption problem that you both have described in Mali, if you had the ear of the new government and you could emphasize, again, a couple, two or three uh, specific concrete measures that you think the government ought to adopt, what would they be? And Musa, since you were just uh, speaking on this, maybe let me invite you uh, to offer the, the ones that you would put at the top of your priority list. And then, Basuba, I'm going to ask you the same question and maybe ask you uh, which additional uh, items you think should be at the top of the anti-corruption reform agenda for Mali over the next, let's say, one to three years. A great question, Matt. I thank you so much for that one. You know, um, for us is really, and personally for me, is really important to, to think deeper about the effectiveness of the institutions we are here to combat corruption. Because we have more than 10 organizations or institutions or agencies from the government side to combat corruption. So that means even you take the functioning budget of these 
10 plus 10 organization or institution to combat corruption is a huge money. But what is the effectiveness of this organization? First question. So when you do a monitoring and evaluation of these institutions, you can combine them to make a one and big and stronger one or two organizations or institution to really track illicit uh, enrichment and also track uh, the government money and get it back to the government. This is one thing, the institutional part of it. The second part will be the justice reforms, like how to make the justice powerful and stronger to get every single corrupt corruption files or inquiries and get to the end, and also having a process to control the justice system itself. Not just get the justice over everything, but how to track the corruption in justice itself so we can get everything transparent and open so we can get from a point B to a point A, like transparently and openly. The last one will be like individual aspect of it. I would say every single government officials or elected or higher officer to declare their own heavens, to declare their own heavens to a commission, but also so we can urge this publicly so everyone in the communities can access to this information. And if they know the person could understand or see if the person is lying about his evidence or if it is true. So if the ones who lie, so they can just take them to the job because this is the first thing is to be honest, transparent, and work with integrity as an individual. So for us, it's good to have a good system and also it's good to have a great justice system, but the own and individual responsibility means a lot to manage public efforts. Fantastic. Dusuba, may I ask if you would have any uh, specific measures that you would add to uh, Musa's list that you would say ought to be at the new government's, at the top of the new government's priority list for anti-corruption reform? Yeah. Uh, first of all, that's an amazing question. So what to add on what Musa already say? I'm going to say probably uh, we need to have some measures of fiscal transparency. I think it's really important to, to try to reform that sector and make sure that everything can be whether computerized or informatized to make sure that all of the payment are going to the pocket of the government, but make sure that also the government is being accountable to the population in terms of give the information on what did the money. So that's something that is really important because I know uh, we blame the government a lot because we know that the corruption is there, but at the same time, the, the population has is part of responsibility in the sense that a lot of people do not pay their taxes and everything. So I think that this is really um, an important point. Musa just mentioned the reform of the justice sector. We have to put a stop on impunity. We know here in Mali that if you steal some money in the government, nothing will happen to you. We need to stop that. We need to shift that completely. If you do something, some sanctions need to be put in place to actually like give a, a good lesson so that people will stop doing that. I mean, if we don't do it, that, that, will, that will keep going. And it, it has been going on for like decades now. And my last point, and it's more like on um, not individual level, but like community level, I think that there is really a mistrust between the government and the population. There is a huge gap between those two. 
And it's absolutely crucial for the government to talk to the population, involve them in the decision-making process, listen to them and make sure that their needs and their aspiration is at the center of the politics. And not the international agenda, not anything, but really the needs of the population. That's absolutely crucial. So those are my, uh, my three big points. That's great. That's, that's uh, really helpful and, and seems really comprehensive. And I very much appreciate both of you taking time out of your busy schedules and what I know is an, a particularly challenging time in your home country to speak with me and speak to all our listeners about Mali and the work that you're doing there. Um, thank you so much. Again, this has been an episode of Kickback, the Global Anti-Corruption Podcast. And today I've had the opportunity to speak with Dusuba Kunate and Musa Kondo, both of whom are with the NGO called the Accountability Lab. Uh, Dusuba, a senior program officer with Accountability Lab Global, and Musa, the director of Accountability Lab Mali. Thank you to both of you again for your time and for your insights. Thank you for having us. Thanks so much. It was our pleasure. Thanks. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Kickback. If you want to learn more about the work of the Accountability Lab, check out the show notes of this episode. If you liked today's interview, make sure to find us on Facebook and Twitter under at KickbackGAP. We post much corruption-related content there. So if you haven't already, make sure to click the follow button. We would also appreciate it if you could use your own social media platforms to post about Kickback and recommend us to your friends. Kickback is a joint production of the Interdisciplinary Corruption Research Network and the Global Anti-Corruption Blog. It is made by Niels Kürbis, Matthew Stevenson, Jonathan Kleinpass and me, Christopher Starke, with music by Kaihan Golka. That's it for now. Have a nice holiday season despite the challenging circumstances we all live in. And we see you back here on the 28th.